11. The time of uh, the next three chapters, starting in chapter 11, was during the reign of King Josiah and his successor and son, Jehoahaz. The temple has been remodeled during the time of Josiah. In the midst of the remodeling of the temple, one of the workers, they found the copy of the law. The law was given to the priest, and the priest brought it to the king, and he read it to the king, and the king responded in terror. He's realizing all of these things, these things of this covenant that this man is reading to me, we're not doing. And matter of fact, we're far from it. And so as Josiah is the king, he has certain powers that are available to him. So what he does is he, 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 in, in, he, in, <laughs> he institutes certain laws and certain things that, well, he's of the mindset, we got to get back to God. We got to get back to where we need to be. But There's a problem in that because you cannot legislate the hearts of people. Now, we're told of this in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verses 31 and 33. It says, Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And he, and this is key here in verse 32, and he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not part from following the Lord God of their fathers. So a key term there is, is that he made them do it. And so what this tells me is that the people did not have a heart to do these things. And so you you have this problem with these people that are outwardly obeying the law, but they're harboring idolatry in their hearts. And we see this constant flow. We're in 2 Kings on Sunday night. And we see the same thing. We have Joash. We have this young man who starts off so well. He repairs the temple. He expels the, the idolatry that is in the land. And he's doing this great work. But right at the end of his life, he, he gives up. He gives up and, and, and goes back to the abominations of those who were before him. And I'm just thinking, man, this guy, he, for 40 years he reigned and was doing a good thing. And he just didn't finish well. That's one of the prayers that I pray to God. I would finish well. That, that not, not just finish well, but I would even do better. That I would grow in my relationship with God. That I wouldn't just go through the motions as a pastor, but even as a Christian. But I would diligently seek the Lord with all of my heart. Because again, we talk about the inerrancy of the word and how real this is and it expresses the desire of God. Ought we not to be digging deep? Ought we not to be passionate? And I'm talking about personally, personally passionate about these things, understanding that lives hang in the balance. When Josiah died, so did the revival, and his son is described as having doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, I think Josiah's heart was right. He was doing what he could, and you just can't change the hearts of people, but you do what you need to do, and I believe that he did what he needed to do. But we're going to be looking at through the prophet Jeremiah is the heart of the people. And really what we're going to be looking at is the heart of the Lord towards the hypocrisy 
of the people. And so the first thing that the prophet reconfirms is the responsibility of the people. Verses 1 through 7 in chapter 11. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all I command you, so shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. And I answered and said, So be it, Lord. That would be Jeremiah's response. Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah, and the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. See, it's, it's one thing to hear them. It's quite another to do them. Usually the do them means that it has sunk through from the hearing into the heart and has become part of you so that there is that response of what you do. Verse 7, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. And so that was a constant thing of the Lord, was obedience. It was what the Lord desired. It wasn't the sacrifice, it was the obedience of heart. Calvary Chapel in the 60s, they bring the word of God, and it's a good thing. Today, our world, maybe it's just my world, because people always mention it to me, is filled with people who were there, their words. But the problem about it is, so where are you going now? And the majority of the people aren't going anywhere. It's like something that they did. They, they were part of that happening back there, but since it's not happening anymore, neither are they. But the thing about it is, since they were there and they heard the gospel, there's great responsibility. Israel, you, you, your people were there. They saw the hand of God move in Egypt in just an amazing way. They saw the plagues that he brought against the, the Egyptians with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. They saw when they were up against the Red Sea that God parted the Red Sea and they, they walked through. When water was necessary in the wilderness, God provided. And then there was that time at Mount Sinai where the earth was quaking and the thundering and lightnings were going off and God delivered his word in such an undeniable way. And again, just as those who were there in the 60s or those who ever heard or studied the gospel, there's no excuse. The Lord said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, But he who did not know, yet committed these things, deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. They're less responsible. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. For everyone to whom much has been given, we've been given eternal life. We've been given salvation. God has given us grace and expresses love towards us. It says for those people much will be required. What are we giving back to the Lord based upon what he has given to us? Knowledge in God's kingdom, it just breeds responsibility. And we need to be people who embrace that responsibility, not counted amongst the hypocrites or just churchgoers, but we need to be faithful in what God has called us to do. We need to be found a people who are obedient. 
Israel, when it came to covenants, had a long history of irresponsibility. And again, through second kings, through both kings, really, and through the chronicles, this king did well, this king did evil. This king did well, this king did evil. And you're just seeing the repercussions that happened because of the evil, and you're just thinking, come on, get with it. But then again, we're the same way. We understand what God blesses, and we know what God desires from us as born-again believers. And I have to ask, how faithful are we in what we know that God has called us to do? And regardless of the range of maturity that exists even in this room right now, we all know to a degree what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. Are we living up, for, living up to that, if anything else, for the sake of the generations? And then Israel, just before they're entering into the promised land, there's the book of Deuteronomy. This was a detailed reminder of the people of the covenant that they made with their God. Again, on Mount Sinai, and this is where the kids are at in their class today, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, God told Moses to tell the people, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, or my word, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God wasn't expecting perfection. He knew they couldn't be perfect, but he was looking for the heart. He was looking through the exterior, and he was looking at the heart. Where's your heart with the Lord? I mean, just in the things that we do and the things that we say and how we conduct our lives, are, are we open and we honest with our hearts before the Lord? I mean, to have those open and honest conversations when God convicts us or God speaks to us in a certain manner, not just to ignore, to gloss these things over or to give excuses, but to truly have a time of self-examination because through the prophet, that's what God is causing to happen here in Jeremiah chapter 11 and even through to chapter 12. So you see, God, that if you're obedient, you're going to be the special treasure. And we know that God was going to use him for his light to the world. Exodus chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So really, you have this contrast. You have the words of God, and you have the words of the people. The words of the people aren't worth a pile of beans, because although they said they would do it, they never had a heart to do so. But God is always faithful. God was always faithful and his word was always true. So here God has called the prophet to go out into the streets and remind them of the terms of the covenant. Again, verse 6, Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them or be faithful to them. An outward revival that does not come from the heart is something that is very distasteful for the Lord. Remember how the hypocrisy of Laodicea, remember how that affected the Lord? What was the, what was the threat that he gave that church? Behold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It had an outward appearance, but inside they were far from the Lord. They were lukewarm. That's to be warm on the outside, but cold as ice on the inside. It's the height of Josiah's revival that Jeremiah proclaims this message because obviously God is able to see through to the hearts of the people. As far as refusing God's word, your Isaiah, the Isaiah that you have in your lap, would be the same Isaiah that they had during Jeremiah's time. And Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 says, If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... 
You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, we know what happened. History and the Bible both tell us that both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom, they were both devoured by the sword. Why? Because they weren't willing and they were not obedient. They weren't willing and they weren't obedient. Well, of course, if you're not willing, you're not going to be obedient. But again, we've got to take these things through into our lives. Are you willing and obedient? Are you willing and obedient? How, How about if you're willing and obedient when God truly speaks the hard thing to you? How about when God desires something of yours? How about when God desires something from you, maybe to go, maybe to speak, whatever it might be, because again, the the sin that is being spoken of is that they weren't willing and they weren't obedient. We've got to consider that in our lives. Am I truly willing? I mean, Isaiah, he stood before God and said, here I am, send me. That's a mouthful. That's a lot to say before a holy God, speaking those things without knowing where God is going to send you. And so he did open his mouth and God used him in a mighty way. Why? Because he was willing and then he was also obedient. Secondly, a lack of responsibility leads to a lack of integrity, verses 8 through 13. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I have commanded them to do, but which they have not done. And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been formed among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back the iniquities or to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, because of these things, thus says the Lord, behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. Though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities where your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. The idea is on every city, on every corner, there's a place to worship these false gods. In this life, everybody is going to choose who we will serve. You're going to be the slave to something. For those who are apart from God, it'll be one of the three of the unholy trinity. be a slave to the flesh, a slave to the world, and a slave to the devil. Pretty much everything that's not of God, it will fall under one of those three categories. Each of these are cruel taskmasters that will eventually lead to your death, both physically and spiritually. I was just kind of cruising through YouTube one day, and I... I don't remember what band. It was one of the bands. I think it was from the 60s or maybe it was the 70s or whatever. And it was called, I think it was called Behind the Music. It was kind of like a history of that band. I was kind of watching it and kind of thinking, well, I looked at the other ones that were listed there and it hit me that each of these bands, somebody died. Somebody, and usually it was from excess. It's usually because they gave in to the flesh, the world, or the leading of the devil. And I'm just thinking, just to go and play music, is that that dangerous of a thing? But then I see the moral aspect to, you know, the direction that a lot of these people in the band, these bands, they took. 
And they were definitely contrary to God. And, and when I say they weren't even, it's not that they weren't of God, they were contrary to God. And you just see that it ended in excesses and it ended in, in, in drugs and, and alcohol and it ended in people's deaths. There was just something in the news of this 21-year-old rapper that just died, I think it was just yesterday. And they found out he died from an overdose of drugs. And it's just that lifestyle and just worshiping that false god of the flesh or that false god of the world. And you become a slave to that. And sooner or later, it takes your life both physically and spiritually. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one, it's no one, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Just as we cannot have our treasures here in earth, and because light and darkness cannot dwell within our bodies at the same time, you can't serve two masters. When it speaks of masters, it speaks of two different lords, two different people that give direction to your life, because it's obvious sooner or later the directions are going to conflict, and then what? And you see it in people that are trying to to, to straddle the line between Christianity and, and the world. They're basically serving two masters, or at least attempting to serve two masters, and it just can't be done. A slave owner would control every aspect of that slave's life. Joshua, Joshua, as his people were entering into the promised land, he realized that and he understood it. He says, if it seems evil to you, and he's telling his people, you've got to make a choice here. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day who you will serve, whether the gods, small g gods, which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And up to that point, he'd been doing just that. And he was a man who'd been counted faithful. And as far as the scriptures tell us, he was faithful to the end. And it just seems to me, the older you get, the, real, the more I realize I've got to put more effort into that. I've got to put more effort because there's just that mindset of pulling back and kicking back and letting somebody else. We were doing devotions in children's ministry before a church, and Dwight was talking about how old he's getting. And uh, I agreed with him. He's getting pretty old. We are getting pretty old. He, somebody in there said, yeah, I turned 50 and I need glasses. And I was thinking, I turned 40 and I needed glasses. I just had two other teeth that were pulled out. I just had some dental work done yesterday where they put a bridge in. If I was a horse, I wouldn't be worth a plug nickel. But what I see in the wisdom of age is the necessity to pour into the Lord and the things of the Lord into the younger generations. Because sooner or later, we're going to be gone. And, and, and then what? And just as somebody was faithful to pour into me, I've got to be faithful to pour into others and be diligent in that in prayer. And, and so jo, uh, Joshua says, if it seems even you serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Well, we looked at it last week and we just saw previously in verse 14, that was verse 24, 15. In verse 14, he says, put away the idols that are amongst you, the idols that they had brought with them from Egypt. And again, it's just insane after seeing God move to such a degree that they would bring idols. But you see how the people's heart were continuously set towards the flesh or for the world. Because all of those idols, if you look up in the Greek gods, the Roman gods, you look up in just about any idol that has ever existed, they're all representation of the flesh or of the world. And they're all under the control. Well, they're not under the control of God. They're all under the control of the devil. 
And we see as people worship this, what are they worshiping? They're worshiping the flesh or they're worshiping the world. And Joshua says, put those things away from you. I I realize the hand and the power of God. I realize what God is able to do, and I understand that God wants to do so much more. Because remember, God wanted these people to be his special treasure that would display him to all of the world. And so Joshua says, as for me and my house, we're going to do the best that we can. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to make the Lord our master, and it's going to be he who directs our lives. Again, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And the reason Jesus said it like that is because it just didn't make sense. If how, Why would you call somebody your master if you're not obedient to that master? Because lip service is one thing, but the proof is going to be in the actions of your life. That's what's going to tell the story. A slave who hates and displeases his master is going to be useless for his master's purposes. Back over at verse 14 through 17, God's telling the prophet, Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. What has my beloved to do in my house? Having done lewd deeds with many and the holy flesh has passed from you, when, when you dwell, I'm sorry, when you do evil, when you rejoice, the Lord called your name. Green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. And so again, he's bringing all of Israel into this because the kingdom was divided at this time. When he says Israel in verse 17, he's speaking of the northern kingdom. Judah, he's speaking of the southern kingdom. Now here he tells them, don't pray for them. It's kind of funny thing coming from God. We're to offer prayers for all men. Well, the only acceptable prayer for an unbeliever or a backslider is that they would repent. It's the only acceptable prayer. It's the only prayer that God is going to hear concerning that person. Because what difference does it make what you pray for an unbeliever if they don't repent and get right with God? God has no desire that they live comfortable in this life apart from a relationship with him. Matter of fact, when God's people aren't right with him or an unbeliever, God wants to disturb them. He wants to get their attention that they would stop and that they would turn to him. Everything that God does and allows into the lives of an unbeliever or a backslider is for the purpose of repentance, that they would stop and that they would turn and they would come to the Lord. We're told as much in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 3, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, he's basically saying, for you're guilty, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue has muttered perversity. And so, you see, don't just pray that things are going to get better. Don't just pray, you know, we have, you know, you'll have unbelievers that come into your life. And they'll ask you for prayer. I'm not saying don't pray for what they ask for. I mean, as long as it's not sin. But your prayer for them, your heartfelt prayer for them, needs to be that they would repent and get right with God. Because everything starts there. You should know that because 
That's where your Christian life started as well. It started at the point of repentance because it's then as you believe that that salvation flowed into your life and then God made all of the difference. He made a change in your life. Verses 15 through 17, What has my beloved to do in my house, having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh has passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name, green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit, with the noise of a great tumult. He has kindled fire on it, and his branches are broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and for the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. Concept that the apostle Paul picked up in Romans chapter 11. Not going to turn there, but Paul used that concept as far as Israel had a holy stump. You had the prophets, and you had the Word of God, and you had their history, and that is so rich, and it's so valuable. Here we are, a Christian church in 2017, and our three services of the week, two of them were looking at the Old Testament and gleaming in the Old Testament and understanding the nature of God from the Old Testament. And so that stump is very valuable. That core is, is beyond value. But then there were the branches that grew off from it. And those branches on that wild tree were not producing good fruit. He uses the example of the olive tree as well as Paul did back in Romans chapter 11. And the thing about it is the olive tree is to produce something that is useful and of value. Olive oil was of an extreme value back in that day. Matter of fact, we see that olive oil or oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. But Israel was producing that which was of absolutely no use. And so what Paul is saying is God broke those branches off when the time when Christ came and then the work of Acts as the gospel went out into the the known area of the world. And he grafted on the branches of the Gentiles. And we're partakers of that today. But one day, and that was what Paul's point was in in Romans chapter 11, that God will graft Israel back in. But here you see it from the perspective of Israel. Once again, verse 16, just real quick. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and good fruit. So they had great potential, but with the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it and its branches are broken. They were an unfaithful people and unfortunately they paid a great price. Thirdly, the prophet has spoken of the people's responsibility, their lack of integrity, and now he expands on that planned conspiracy, verses 18 through 23. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it. Now the it that he's talking about is over in verse 9, the conspiracy. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb, docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may not be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteous, righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have revealed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth, who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. This conspiracy was their plan to kill off Jeremiah. 
because the only possible way to kill off the conviction of God's word is to kill off the speaker of God's word. And then, so that was the idea. They're convicted by what this prophet has to say. If it wasn't true, who cares? Let the prophet say whatever he wants to say. Why could they possibly care? But it has affected him to such a degree that they want to kill off the word of God. And that's the problem with a lot of people. A lot of people who attend church, a lot of people apart from Jesus Christ coming into church, or it happens out in the world as well, but they hear the word of God and they're convicted by it. And so you have one or two, one or two ways to go. In the conviction, you can surrender yourself to the Lord or you can kill it off out of your life and people never come back. They can never come back because it, it's against the law really to kill the pastor. But the only other way that you're really able to do it is they just do not come back. Or, or if you're out in the streets sharing the gospel, there's the conviction. They can submit to it or they can kill it. And unfortunately, a lot of people, so many people, they decide to kill it. This is why the church has been persecuted and its people martyred throughout the ages. Now, it hasn't been in every age that the church was persecuted and martyred. It's those times when the church is quiet that the church is at peace. But in this particular case, peace isn't a good thing. Again, Lord, disturb us to action. Notice how Jesus told us in Mark 6, 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Well, Anathoth, Anathoth is the hometown of Jeremiah. So his own people, his own town, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him because they wanted to silence him. They may not want to kill you, but they sure wish you'd be quiet or go away. And it's then that we understand when you see that reaction from a people, you know that God is doing a work deep within inside of them. You know that there's the conviction of the Holy Spirit there. Because if it's just you, well, there's no real conviction there and they'll just blow you off. But when you see that their heart is being vexed, when they're being touched that way, you understand that God's doing a work. On Facebook, most of you know I posted devotion there. Well, when I first got on Facebook, people see you, you know, that you graduated with and you get these friends that you haven't seen in thousands of years, or Dwight, 10,000s of years because he's old. And, and you got all this. And, and then I started posting God's word, you know, just a little paragraph every day. And all of a sudden, I, you don't notice it because it doesn't tell you, but all of a sudden you realize that, hey, this person isn't my friend anymore. And this person isn't my friend anymore. And they start falling off. And again, What's the big deal? Who cares what words you put on a page? They're not insulting or anything like that. But really what it does is it's convicting. It's hitting their heart and they want to kill it off. They don't want to hear it anymore. How does the prophet deal with the situation? Verse 20. But you, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, test the mind and the heart. Let me see your vengeance on them for you for to you I have revealed my cause. He says, God is the one who tests the minds in the heart. So what he's doing, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He's giving God, he's asking God that God would take care of the situation because it's God who understands the truthfulness of it all. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 47, King David, he sought after the Lord, and he said, Then all the assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you, he will give Goliath, into our hands. 
And so we see this great work that is coming up through Jeremiah, the prophet of conviction of the people. You see how the people don't want to hear it. And again, this chapter is ending with them wanting to put Jeremiah to death. And we enter into chapter 12. Now, entering into chapter 12, some time has passed, but things have not progressed. And again, they haven't really progressed. And this is a little bit of an issue, really, according to Jeremiah's timetable. So we start off chapter 12 looking at a question, verses 1 through 4. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, that's a big word, yet, let me, how many times have you prayed to the Lord? And you said, yet, because usually yet is a transition where you're about to interject your opinion or about to question the Lord. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those who have... Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them, yes, they have taken root. They grow, yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. You have tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of the field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said, he will not see our final end. How do these wicked men continue and even thrive in their wickedness? This is a question that reverberates throughout the ages. It's the godly who live a godly life and give of their all for the glory of God and we struggle and we just saw we're persecuted. And you can look over at the wicked and you can see how well the wicked do. Matter of fact, the wicked, those who are contrary to God, they even seem to prosper. And the idea is how do these two things fit together? Now, this isn't a challenge to God, but it's a question of curiosity. He starts out well, righteous are you. So he's confirming God's place. He's confirming his understanding of who God is. See, it's not okay to question God but it is okay to ask questions of God. When we ask questions, we ask questions for the purpose of learning. And so he's wanting to gain understanding here. Now, if you could only talk to Jeremiah, you would tell him to consider because he's doing God's work. Remember Jeremiah, you never see fruit out of his ministry. And so it's got to be hard. And I'm sure at times he got depressed. But if you could talk to him, you'd say, Jeremiah, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for God's sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's what's happening. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And so that's the idea. You can say, man, God told me to go preach the word, and I walked the streets preaching the word. I went and told my family. They all came over for Thanksgiving, and I stood up and prayed and said you know, spoke about the Lord, and they laughed at me. And you can start getting angry towards God, but God just said, that's all I ever asked you to do. That's all I ever asked you to do. And as long as you're faithful and do that, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who went before you and said, this isn't something new. This is what has happened. This is what has always happened. King David realized it, and again, it's a psalm that speaks perfectly towards this in Psalm 73, verses one, starting at verse 1. It's actually, I'm sorry, it's the song of Asaph. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, now, now this person's looking at this, this 
dynamic. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pangs in their death, and their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Other men here would be godly men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, this people return here, and the waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I was consider this, uh, this again, this dynamic of, of these God, ungodly people who are blaspheming the Lord, and look how they found comfort in this life. Look how they have prospered. And I'm sure he could say, look at myself, and look how I have suffered. He said again in verse 16, I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And again, it's that reality of heaven here on earth or heaven for eternity with the Lord. Some people, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. For us, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. We've got eternity with our God. And that's the idea. Now he's understanding the big picture. In verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Over at verse 28, the last of this chapter, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Once again, when he came to this knowledge, when he understood their end, when he understood his end, then he was strengthened in the Lord and once again prepared to be used by the Lord. Next, we see God's answer for Jeremiah's correction, verses 5 through 13, back in chapter 12. If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how then can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the flood pain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called the multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemy. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me, therefore I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. All vultures all around are against her. Come and assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard and have trotted my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. They have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness, for the sword of the earth shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sworn, weep, but reaped, I'm sorry, they have shown warm, sown wheat, but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. 
but be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Notice how God's answer to the prophet focuses on what the prophet has control over himself. At least in the first part, in verse 5, you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you. Then how will you contend with the horses? So he's telling him to, to look at himself. Warren Wiersbe says, our question should never be, how can I get out of this? But our question needs to be is, what can I get out of this? And we're talking about the trials and the troubles that man goes through. And so again, God's asking, commanding the prophet to consider himself. If just in your hometown you're having a little bit of problems, how about when you go and and you face the king? And, And so be prepared and allow the growth to come. I mean, God's servants do not live by explanations, but according to the promises of God. I mean, if God had to explain everything, we'd never get anything done. We know we've got these rich promises of God. We don't live by explanations. I don't know why God allows certain things to happen. I don't know why he allowed this guy the other day to kill people. I don't understand the mass murder thing and all of that. I just don't know. But what I do know is is the promises that God has given us and how we need to continue to push forward. God doesn't want to make us smarter. He desires to build our character. He desires to make us into people that reflect something different from this world that is just spinning out of control. Everybody is sexually abusing everybody else. It's on the news every day, and every day, every moment, it's somebody new. This week, this coming week, where's the next mass murder going to come from? I mean, mark my words, it's going to happen. Why? Because we've never dealt with the heart of the situation. I mean, we've taken guns away, now they're running people over with trucks. It's just always going to happen until people's heart get right with the Lord. We can't allow opposition to drag us down. We've got to understand it's through the power of the living God that we are able to change souls and change the history, the course of history. And I don't mean history as far as history as we think about it, but people's lives, people's lives setting them in God's direction. Three things that we see here that are reflections of our Christian lives in the face of trials. First of all, we see in verses 5 through 6, serving can and will be tiring. It takes effort. Secondly, when serving the Lord, things will get harder, not easier. We see that in verses 7 through 9. And then thirdly, people act according to their own hurt, and it's going to break your heart. Verses 10 through 13. And then lastly, we have God's warning for caution. Thus says the Lord, against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then I shall be, after I have plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name. Now, to swear by my name just means of a recognition of his superiority. To swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. Just a couple of things real quickly. It's through that punishment that God is going to reveal himself. And it worked. Never again did Israel, after Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity, as God said he would do, they were reestablished again. Jerusalem, the temple, was reestablished. 
Never again did Israel, as a nation, participate in idolatry again. They did learn their lesson. But we do see again in verse 17, but if they do not obey, I will utterly pick up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. We know that this world, it's going to come a time that the Lord is going to destroy the nations, that God is going to exercise tribulation upon this world as they have never seen. But as for today, we're God's prophets. We're God's people. Not so much a prophet, but more like a witness, going out for the purpose of making disciples. Because just as surely as God's word came to pass in Jeremiah's day, the things that he has told us that will come to pass in the end times, we see them even coming around even today. Based upon that, what kind of people ought we to be today? We need to examine our hearts. We need to be motivated in the spirit. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And Lord, as you have given us your word, may we understand the meaning of that and that your word never comes back void. And so, Father, I mean this from the standpoint of the promises and the commands that you have given us. I pray that we would hold them dear within our hearts and they would be a motivation to us. I pray, Father, that our motivation would spark a passion and that, God, we would be useful tools for you in the areas that you have given us to minister to in our lives. And so, Father, we just thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this moment, this time tonight. And we just pray, Father, that you would forever bless us. I lift up those in the prayer request that you would minister to them. I pray for our Sunday services that you would bless. I pray for door to door as they go out on Saturday that you would go, I believe it's a week from Saturday, that you would go before them, Lord, and use them for the work of ministry as well. And so, Father, we just praise you and we just give you all the glory, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? First of all, don't come to church next Thursday night because we're not going to be here. Uh, Next Thursday, believe it or not, is Thanksgiving already. We're having our Thanksgiving service. That's going to be at 9 o'clock in the morning. We'll usually go from 9 o'clock, and I have you out of here by 10 o'clock. We've been doing that ever since we have been a church, so I encourage you to come that day. Uh, This Sunday a.m., we're going to be having a special time of praise, worship, and communion. Some of you remember the praise and worship format that we use, just the scripture and continue to worship the Lord. We'll be doing that this uh, Sunday morning, and the theme of it will be Thanksgiving. Um, As you can see outside and even up here, the Operation Christmas Child boxes are due. And then lastly, ladies, Woman's Christmas Tea, December 2nd. You need to get tickets, need to get signed up so we can make plans. God bless you guys. Have a pleasant rest of the week. As we... As we close with this last song,